Morning. Uh, my name is David Soren. I am the lead pastor here at Renovation Church. Morning to you. Hey, we are continuing this morning in our Life's Biggest Questions series, where we are taking a look at the five biggest, most foundational questions of all of life. And this week, our question is, how do I determine what's right and wrong? Uh, this question is huge. I mean, when societies get this question wrong, wars can happen, a genocide has happened, entire societies have crumbled from getting this question answered incorrectly. I think this question is even paramount to our own personal lives and how we interact with our family members, with our friends, or at work. It's a huge question. I mean, people debate this question on social media every day or on cable TV, or does, do people watch cable TV anymore? I don't know, I just said that. Just, okay, two of you do in the back, thank you. You can reaffirm me later, okay. All over the world, we talk about this question. And yet, if you look really closely at it and the debates that are happening around this question, they tend to be more about what is right and what is wrong. Not so much about how do I determine what is right or wrong? And that is really the deeper question. That's the important questions. Question. So think about like moral issues like sex or greed or abuse. Everybody draws a line somewhere. I mean, even gangs have complex systems of morality and what is right and wrong. Everybody draws a, draws a line somewhere, but the vast majority of people don't know why they drew their line where they drew it. And so we're going to talk about that today. And first, we're going to start with the Christian and biblical answer to this big question of life. Okay, so Christians believe that morality, and morality is just your set of standards for right and wrong. For us, we believe that morality can't just be left up to personal preference. For us, we believe that right and wrong are found in the Bible and they aren't just arbitrary rules that God is demanding of us. We believe that they are a reflection of our God himself, of his character. They're a reflection of his justice and his mercy and his goodness and his kindness. Or as Psalm 19 says this in verse 7, it says, The law of the Lord is perfect refreshing the soul. The statues of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. Or in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul puts it this way in 2 Timothy. He says, all scripture, so all of the Bible is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. That is, it tells us what is right and what is wrong. And I want you to know that this view that we find right and wrong in God's word to us, it's not as simplistic as I think sometimes its opponents make it out to be. So I've read a number of critiques on biblical ethics, and almost all of them say the exact same thing. They say, here's the deal, Christians think that they need to obey God's rules so that God doesn't send them to hell, and that's not actually a good reason or method for determining right and wrong. Which, by the way, that isn't what the Bible teaches at all. I just wonder, have these people actually studied what the New Testament says? The Bible doesn't say that we live for God so that we can get our way out of hell. It actually says the exact opposite of that, right? It says that Jesus took the punishment that we deserved on the cross, and therefore, since he died for us, we want to live for him. 
and we trust in his ways, and we, we have found them, as the beginning of Proverbs says, useful for gaining wisdom and instruction, for understanding words of insight, for receiving instruction in prudent behavior, doing what is right and just and fair. They are our guide because they come from God and they flow from his character. Okay, so that is the Christian understanding, the Christian answer to this question. But how does the rest of society answer this question? And are their answers logical? Are they consistent? So what I want to do this morning is I want to look at the five most common ways that the culture answers this question of how do I determine right and wrong? And I'm going to show it to you on a graph we made to help explain this. And I encourage you to take notes as we go today. First Peter tells us in the Bible, there were always to give a reason for the hope that we have, and I want you to be able to explain these things that we're talking about. Okay, so let's take a look. The very first common answer that secular society gives, a moral philosophy of, if you will, is what we would call live your truth. Now, this popular philosophy is it's really common, but it's beginning to fade a little bit. And so if you ask someone in this camp about uh, sexual ethics or uh, the legalization of drugs or pick any issue that you want, what you're going to hear from people who believe this is the best way to determine morality are things like this. They're going to say, we're each free to decide what's right for our own lives and to determine what is loving and what makes us happy. They would say things like, you just need to listen to the voice inside of you. It's important to follow your heart. You need to discover your true, authentic self. Live your truth. Now, when we plot this moral philosophy uh, on our graph today, you'll notice that on the x-axis, I just, do you remember middle school math? This is gonna be so fun, okay. Uh, on the x-axis, that's the horizontal, th- what it is is the locus of truth. So it's just asking in moral philosophy, where do they find, locate, right and wrong. And over here, the ones on the left are saying they find right and wrong internally. So if someone says, live your truth is the way that we determine right and wrong, they're gonna say, I find out what's right and wrong inside of me. That's where truth is. And then you're also gonna notice on the y-axis, which is about change, that it's really high, meaning that this set of morals is gonna be so fluid, it's gonna change dramatically over time determining what is right and wrong. It's gonna change, in fact, from person to person. Now, this kind of thinking, the live your truth, follow your desires, follow your heart, really popular among just the average, everyday American. You probably hear these phrases all the time, right? But I do wanna let you know that no serious thinker believes that this is actually a good system for determining right and wrong. So very, 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 very few professors or philosophers or even atheist authors would say, yes, this is a good system for us to determine right and wrong. This is rationalization at its finest, but it's not really good philosophy. And that's because you can just break it down so quickly, right? So you could walk up to someone and say, okay, so then if a terrorist wants to blow up a skyscraper, is that morally right? Because for them, that is their truth. Remember, it feels right to them. It is what their heart wants. And so these ideas of live your truth or just follow your heart, they sound right in part because we've been so inundated by them in our culture, but when you play it out, you can see it's a completely illogical way of actually determining right and wrong. It doesn't work as a system. Okay, so let's keep building our graph. Our second moral philosophy is what we're gonna call treat others like they want to be treated. 
Now, this can sound good. In fact, Jesus himself even said a similar thing. But one of the things we need to remember about the teachings of Jesus is much of the wrong that Jesus talked about was also about how we as humans sin against God. And that doesn't even need to involve how we treat another person. And so moral philosophies or systems can't just be about human-to-human interactions if God exists. But even if a person didn't think God existed, this moral philosophy, it still breaks down when you ask hard questions of it. Uh, for example, like, isn't it possible that an act could be wrong even if someone wants to be treated that way? So, uh, okay, let's say I'm, I'm walking on, on the street and I see a homeless person, and the homeless person asks me to buy him alcohol. Should I do it? Would it be right? Because that is how he wants to be treated. And again, what you're stuck with is still an internal locus of truth, right? If we treat others how they want to be treated, or even if we said how we think they should be treated, then morality is still different for every single person because we're each determining it, and you're going to see it's still incredibly fluid, and it's going to change all over the place because we each are deciding how each person needs to be treated. Okay, let me give you the next really popular philosophy in America about how to do right and wrong. This one we're going to call the harm principle. So the harm principle answers this question of how do I determine right and wrong by saying nothing is wrong as long as you're not harming anyone or as long as it doesn't hurt anyone or take away their freedom or autonomy. You hear this one a lot? Right, really, really popular in our culture. Now, to its credit, this is a significantly more robust way of expressing live your truth, because at least it's trying to find a common theme to ground itself in. In this case, it's do no harm. That's why it's not quite as internal on the graph, because it's looking to this external locus of truth, which is harm, right? And it's not going to change as much because it's trying to define now a right and wrong. However, there are still a ton of problems of logic and consistency with this moral philosophy. First of all, you could ask, what is harm? I mean, how would we define what harm is? Uh, We need to realize that the definition of harm is constantly changing. So let me give you an example of this. If you go back to the 1960s, in the 1960s, I read this in a book the other day, I just thought it was fascinating. Kindergartners could ride to school a half a mile on their bike every day. In fact, if they lived that close, they were encouraged to, by the school district, ride their bikes by themselves to school a half a mile, back and forth. Nowadays, in some communities, parents could literally be arrested for sending their kindergartner a half a mile on their bike because we would say, you are causing them harm. Or you could just, you could pick like any hot button issue, right? Like abortion or immigration. And you could see people are going to wildly disagree about what harm is in those scenarios. And so harm, if we say it's fine as long as you don't harm anyone, realize that harm is not some shared constant definition that we can all agree upon and refer to, right? And can you see how these secular theories, they don't work as a moral philosophy. Or just think of it this way. Okay, if on almost every single moral issue, the culture is saying, who are we to define what's wrong? Who are we to tell another person how to live? If the culture can barely admit that wrong even exists, 
How then can it turn around in the exact same second and say, but there is a very defined thing as harm. Do not do it. What well, doesn't make any sense? Harm is impossible to define unless you can define it somewhere in some external guide that everyone can agree on. And because of that, let me show you how dangerous I think this particular moral philosophy is and why it is in part responsible for our morals in America changing at just a lightning speed. See, the harm principle is supposed to be, in America right now, our guardrails of morality. We'll say, you can do whatever you want as long as you don't hurt anyone, as long as you don't take away their freedom or their autonomy. And that's supposed to make sure that we don't sort of devolve into morality that we would all say is wrong. But if that is our guardrail, then what sort of, what, what sort of moral defense would you have against, say, polyamorous relationships, like two men and one woman? Or what sort of moral defense would you have uh, against a marriage of three women and one man? Is that hurting anyone, if that's what they want? It's, it's probably not. So how would you morally defend it then? Uh, in his book, uh, The Rise of the Modern Self, uh, Carl Truman says, and by the way, I think if you love thinking deeply, is the, I think it's the best book written in the last 10 years. If you don't, you're going to hate this book. But in his book, uh, Truman talks about how the harm principle, it can't even guard against pedophilia. He says, think of it this way. The harm principle says everything is fine as long as you don't limit anyone else's personal freedom and choices. But he said, think about it. We limit kids personal freedom and choices every day. We say, you know what? I don't really care that you don't want to clean your room right now or that you don't want to mow the lawn. You're going to do what I say, right? And we, we limit them. So now think about this. Put the cultural ideas together from America right now. What if someone in our current culture says, you know what? We each need to be true to our authentic desires and follow our heart. And if someone's personal sexual preference then happens to be the underaged, in our current cultural climate, how could you stop that from happening? If our only moral guardrail is don't infringe on someone else's personal autonomy and freedom. Because we already infringe on the personal autonomy and freedom of children every day saying that they need to serve us and that we know what's best for them. See, what I want you to see is these moral philosophies of our culture that they are wildly insufficient to create a safe, good, and moral culture in America. And see, honestly, it's because people are starting to ask good questions like this that you're gonna see that the culture in the West is now starting to develop new moral philosophies that are gonna move a little bit from this internal locus, that we just define truth for ourselves inside, and we're gonna to start to move more to the external now. But the deal is, we're in this super weird, I would even call it schizophrenic transitionary phase in America right now. And this phase of changing moral philosophies is happening so fast that I'm not sure that a lot of people even see it yet. In fact, when most Americans try and answer questions about morality, so you're talking with your coworker or your friend about some of the issues of today, what you'll find is people will give you reasoning from all over this map. They'll just pull a little bit from here and a little bit from over here that we'll get to, and they're not even picking one consistent system of moral reasoning. So let me show you how this is happening. Okay, 
For example, if you go up to a random secular American, secular just means non-religious, and, and you ask them a question about, let's say, sexuality, hot button issue, right? And you say, is gay marriage okay? Or you say, what about gender, right? And you say, can people change their gender? What you're likely to get as a response, you will find is rooted in one of these first three moral philosophies. People are gonna say things like, you know what, I believe that people can and that they should live out their own truth. They need to discover their authentic self on the inside and then they can live that out however their hearts desires. But what are they talking, what are they saying? They're rooting their reason for morality internally, inside. But watch this, here's what's happening in our country. <laughs> Throw out a different moral issue to them and say, okay, what if someone likes to sexually harass women? What if someone believes in and actually gets kind of a kick out of or gets joy out of writing racial slurs on the bathroom wall of their school or of their company? Now, for these issues, the secular culture doesn't respond with, you know what, that's okay because that person is just following the desires of their heart. No, they're not going to pull from those areas at all. They're going to respond with a fierce moralism and they're going to say, no, that is wrong. And what I'm showing you is that the culture at large doesn't have a consistent system of morality. Instead, they pull from completely contradictory theories to support different behaviors. Does that make sense? Okay, so what's happening now in the last couple of years is the culture now wants to start to make stronger statements about what is right and what is wrong. And it's realizing that in order to do that, it's not gonna be able to pull from live your truth. It's gotta move externally and come up with some moral philosophies that are based on some external sources. So let's go to the fourth one. This is what we're starting to see in the last five to 10 years. This one we're gonna call human flourishing. And so those in this camp say, this is how we determine right and wrong. Does it lead? Does this a law that we could pass? Does this training, does this way of treating other humans, does it lead to human flourishing, to making humans have a good and happy life? And if it does, it must be right. Now, notice, notice we're, we're moving away from the internal now. In this system of morality, people are going to rely heavily on uh, data. Like, what is science saying right now? What is sociology saying? What, what are some of the papers that are being studied right now? Let's look at them and then decide what leads to human flourishing because that must be right. And you could even say, okay, how is the culture striving for human flourishing today? Um, we're really, really interested in things like um, justice and equality and human rights. But think about this. Secular and evolutionary theory doesn't give rights or value to humans or say they are worthy of justice and equal treatment. Right, we've got to strive to give consistent worldviews. Okay, so okay, let's go back to week one where we talked about in this series, where did we come from? If one truly does believe that humans are just an accident from random amino acids bumped together and then life evolved from there, if that's what you believe, then how could you consistently say that you believe that humans have value or the right to flourish? 
Those concepts of human rights and dignity and value, they come out of Christianity, not out of evolutionary theory. The ethicist of Richard Taylor explained it this way. He said, okay, take a hawk. Let's say a hawk is flying around and it comes down and it seizes a fish from the sea. We would say that it kills the fish. You wouldn't say it murdered the fish, right? You say, well, it just killed it. Well, if another hawk then comes by and it, it takes the fish from the other hawk, we would say, well, it took the fish. You wouldn't say it stole it. If a great white shark can forcibly copulate with a female, do we say that's wrong? We don't, actually. We say that is the animal kingdom. And so let's be consistent then. If humans are just the same evolutionary byproducts of an accident, then why are those same issues wrong for humans? What gives humans value? So much so that there is a right and wrong way to treat us. You can't answer that question consistently, logically, without God. And let me warn you about something. When a culture tries to fight for things like equality and justice and human dignity, but they completely remove the reason for those things, in this case, God, what you're more likely to end up with is Hitler than justice. Now think about this. Remember, the Nazis were enacting their vision of human flourishing. They weren't killing for sport. They were exterminating Jews and attempting to take over Europe because that was their vision for how to make the world right. They thought, they believed deeply that what they were doing was right. And so this moral philosophy of human flourishing, it can't answer this question correctly of how do we determine right and wrong because it's not a fixed morality. It's fluid. Anyone can come in and say, all right, let me tell you what human flourishing really is. Okay, let's look now at the final common secular answer uh, for a moral philosophy for how to determine what's right and wrong. This is what we're going to call majority rules. That just simply means the majority in the culture is now telling you, often quite strongly, what is right and what is wrong. Now, this is very different from live your truth, right? This, th- this group is not interested at all in what your personal opinion is on morality. And this is, I believe, actually the fastest growing view of morality in America over the last three or four years. In some ways, I think we shouldn't actually be surprised, and you might not have read a ton about this yet, but I'm telling you this has happened. The live your truth era of America is going to be a short chapter in American history. Uh, This is not going to probably last forever. Some of the best thinkers of the last five years have pointed out leaders in power cannot move people in one cohesive direction when everyone believes their own truth. Right? If 300 million people all believe in their own version of reality, you can't move people in a cohesive direction. And so in a lot of ways, it's no surprise that secular society is trying once again to unite people among a common set of moral values. Now, if you stop and think about it, this last philosophy here, it doesn't really fit for America in 2015, but it feels a lot like 2022. So think of it this way. Okay, if there's any uh, a news story out there, right, and it's about a, a buzzworthy issue, maybe it's about race or diversity or sexuality or pick any of the, like, the top six or seven issues, 
What happens in today's society when that happens? Here's what happens. Corporations, and this Seriously, this blows my mind because this never, ever would have happened even 10 years ago. Corporations like Walmart and Target and Medtronic, they release moral statements, moral statements from the corporations saying, this is what we think on this latest issue. This is how we believe people should act. Schools put out statements Employees go to updated trainings on how we need, now need to act and treat each other. There's a code that we're told that we must abide by if we want to do what's right. People are beginning to be afraid to voice their moral opinion on things that now the majority has said are moral rules. And what is this? This is not the follow your heart of 2005. It isn't. Now, certainly that's still out there, right? But this is really different. A secular society is now claiming there is a clear right and wrong, but the only thing it seems to be grounded in is what the majority thinks at the moment, or at least the people who have the majority of influence. But C.S. Lewis, years ago, correctly dubbed this as what he called chronological snobbery. Chronological snobbery, Lewis says, is the idea that your version of morality is more true simply because you are farther down on the timeline of life. And we are total chronological snobs in American culture. But listen, nobody who has studied history, even for like 10 minutes, has looked at the awful ups and downs. Look at the 20th century, it was horrible, right? Nobody can look at that and say, you know what, we are on one strong arc to moral enlightenment. But that's what we sound like. We say, we've now figured it out, we know what's right and true. And is right and wrong really that fluid, that it changes that much? Okay, think of like some of the really hot button issues of today in your head. Some of these, we literally weren't even talking about them 10 years ago. We didn't even know they existed. And so think of it this way. If the majority culture has now contradicted its own views that it held just 10 years ago in 2012, you better believe that in 2032, our culture is absolutely going to roll its eyes in arrogant disdain as it looks at our current morals of 2022. They're going to look back at us and they're going to say, you barbarians, how could you possibly believe that way? And I think this new iteration of moral philosophy in America is really quite odd. It's nothing like you do you, live your truth. It seems like it's pointing to this very external reality. And usually that external reality is like the latest bestseller on the New York Times bestselling list, right? The book that just came out. Sometimes it's like what all the celebrities are saying right now. Uh, It can be the latest corporate training on how to act. But none of those things are fixed, or grounded in something that doesn't change. And so what's happening is you have the culture coming at you saying, this is morality, please do it this way, but it changes at light speed. You can't even keep up with it because it's not fixed in anything at all. And so what's happening in our culture, and it's not just America, it's much of Western society, it's Europe and it's other places, is we keep trotting out these moral systems. Now you may look at this and say, okay, these are kind of the five ways to look at morality all through life. All of these are almost new within like the last 40 years. I mean, you see iterations of this back in history, but a lot of this is brand new. We just keep trotting out these ideas on how to determine right and wrong, and none of them work. And we have millions of, America who, of Americans who are left in their wake. 
There's so many Americans who are feeling empty from these first three moral philosophies. Maybe that's you. Maybe you've tried to just follow your inner desires and to follow your heart. It hasn't worked. It's just left you feeling empty. I want to tell you that Jesus Christ is where you can find true life. He will walk on alongside of you on a path that leads to true joy. And I think there are still millions of other Americans who, particularly many young Americans, who are now falling for these newer moral philosophies. And they're feeling a different weight upon them. I would say a weight that Americans haven't felt in at least two generations. What they're feeling is the weight of morality. And so the culture is now telling these young people, or people that are just really just enmeshed in secular society, it's telling them that they're not doing enough, or that they said the wrong words, or that they appropriated someone's culture again, or they caused another microaggression. And in today's culture, especially for young people, one wrong word can ruin a friendship. The wrong tweet doesn't get you into college. One bad day gets you labeled as toxic in your family. Not to mention so many people in secular society today, they feel a heavy pressure, not only to align their views to these new morals, but they feel a pressure to outwardly demonstrate and declare their morals in front of everybody else. And I speak like this because there are so many Americans, again, especially young people, that they are suffering under a weight that they cannot live up to. It feels like they're never good enough, that they're not doing enough, and it's so dizzying because it feels like the good they did last year might not even be considered good next year. And one of the things I really want you to see in this series is that the secular answers to all of life's biggest questions are wildly inconsistent with each other. So if you walk back through just even the first few weeks of this series, let me give you the secular answers, the the non-religious answers to life's biggest questions, and look how they may seem okay when you just take them by themselves, but look how they cannot mesh together. So if you go back and you say, where did we come from? The person who doesn't believe in Jesus is gonna say, I believe that I am a scientific accident. And then you start talking about how do we make the world right? They're going to say there is one way to make it right, though, that there is deep meaning in life. And then they're going to say, but I believe I should follow my heart. But many young people today are going to say, but I believe there absolutely is wrong out there, and many of the people in the world are wrong, but I don't really know how to define wrong. And there's nothing cohesive about that. But look at the brilliance Look at the consistency and the beauty of the good news of the Bible. See, the Bible says that God made you and that you have value because you are his creation and you deserve to be treated right and to be cared for because you are God's creation. And God has a standard of right and wrong that has never changed. Well, every other answer to today's question is constantly changing. God's word, it never changes. Hebrews 13 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. 
See, God's unchanging truth, it doesn't rely on what each of our hearts desire in the moment, nor does it rely on some external truth that changes with the culture. Here's the Bible, right? It relies on an external truth, but it's not the latest best-selling book or the latest cool training. It's God's word that never, ever changes. And that's where you find truth. It's a transcendent truth. It rises above our human culture. And yet it's a truth that we've all broken. We're guilty of breaking God's law. But this is the good news I just, I long so deeply for our culture to know and for some of you to know. See, this, this new American secular morality that's just taking over our culture within the last few years, it has such a heavy focus on right and wrong. But if you study the writings there is in, in, in American morality in the secular world, there is no concept of forgiveness. Have you ever thought about that? They have no concept of forgiveness. And so in their system, people are being told every day, you did it wrong, you said it wrong, you didn't do it right, you're not doing this. And what people in our American culture are feeling right now is shame. They're feeling shame. But the Bible says you don't have to suffer under that weight of your mistakes and your sin. Jesus Christ came to earth to carry the weight of your sins because he knew you wouldn't be perfect and that you'd mess up. And he came to die in your place to take the punishment for your sins. And if you would believe in that and give your life to him, that he would take the weight of that off of you and you could be forgiven. You could be washed clean. And you don't have to carry that weight around. And sure, there's still right and wrong, but we follow Jesus because he offered us his love not because we're trying to earn it, because he offered it to us and we trust him and we know that he is so, so good. And so if you're just hearing that for the first time today and you're hearing this truth and going, wow, this stuff from the Bible, from God, it is consistent and it makes sense. And you're going, I, I need, I want that forgiveness in my life. I want to start following Jesus. If you need to do that for the first time today, after the service today, I'm just going to sit right here on the stage as people go out I encourage you to come down and I can help you make that decision. Or even if you feel like I'm close, but I still just have a couple questions, come down. I would love to just help you with that. If you just want to talk to me about something else, uh, just catch me in three or four minutes. I want to give people space to do that. But if you want to do that today, I encourage you to do that. That's why we teach. That's the greatest joy uh, that we have as Christians is to see that happen. Okay, let me pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you that there's so much truth in your word. Uh, that we, we, don't, we don't just believe in some fanciful, emotional faith or religion. That there's substance and logic and consistency and truth behind all of this. And we, we just, we love that, Lord, and we thank you for it. God, help us be a light in this world. So many at our places of work, in our schools, in our community, they are lost. They are lost in answers that don't make sense, and they are driving their own lives, God, that are falling apart because their world doesn't make sense. Lord, help us bring truth. Help us not just to look at it and say, oh, that doesn't make sense. Help us bring truth and light and hope and the gospel to people who need it, God. That's ultimately what we want. It's in your name we pray. Amen.